People everywhere love to complain about meetings. They also, oddly, seem to like to schedule lots of meetings. And we actually need good meetings for teams and organizations to work. Steven Rogelberg is the world's top evidence-based expert on meetings. He's the author of the 2019 hit book, The Surprising Science of Meetings. And more recently, he wrote and published a new book, Glad We Met, The Art and Science of One-on-One Meetings. It's a fascinating and useful look at how we can truly use intentional, thoughtful one-on-one meetings to create stronger relationships, better workplaces, and maybe even a better world. Stay tuned for a wonderful, jam-packed conversation with the one and only Steven Rogelberg. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Stephen Rogelberg, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Great to be back for the second time. And it probably should have been many, many more because you have lots of great things to say and people just love the previous episode that we did with you. So it really is a pleasure to have you. You know, you've spent so much time, I was thinking about this, uh, time and energy researching meetings during the past two plus decades now. You've published a whole bunch of research articles and obviously two books, now two books on meetings. Why? (laughs) Why? <laughs> Why on earth would you do this to yourself? <laughs> well, um, okay. So the so the first answer is that when I was a little boy, um, you know, my mom and dad would come into my bedroom and tell me that they always their biggest dream was that I would solve the meetings problem. <laughs> and so. That was really where it started. This was like a um, sci-fi genetically bred, and now the hope of the future rests on meetings researcher Stephen Rogelberg. So, yeah, so, you know, it was my calling, and uh, so even you know, as I finished elementary school, I was always give, already giving advice and counsel to other kids on how to run their meetings. Um, but seriously, though, the you know, as an organizational psychologist, I'm just drawn to bringing evidence to bear on vexing, miserable problems at work. And meetings are just that perfect candidate, right? We know that people are really frustrated and wallowing and um, and I want to be part of a solution path. And it was really shocking to me how little research was being done on this topic. Um, and so jumped in hard, 20 plus years ago, as you noted. And now the the scholarship is really, um, really elevated. There's such great stuff out there. And it's, again, it's all about helping to improve the individual experience, thriving, leader success, organizational success, innovation, all kinds of topics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and meetings are just one of these things that, you know, it's this, uh, ubiquitous part of life that we experience in organizations that, you know, it seems like, and you've mentioned this in your writing, has been one of those things that we just haven't paid a whole lot of atten- of, of rigorous attention to yeah. um, until these past couple decades. Yeah, it's really fascinating how certain problems that we've experienced for a long time, we basically ignore 
because we don't think they can be solved. And, you know, how was it that we've been wallowing in bad meetings for decades and decades and decades, and yet there was no appetite to work on it? And clearly, the pandemic helped shine a spotlight on meetings. And so I've just really been thrilled to see how much, um, how many organizations are changing, right? Their colors. They're now saying, okay, let's see if we can actually solve this and improve meetings as opposed to just accepting it as the cost of doing business. That's right. You know, your most recent book and the focus of today's episode is this book, Glad We Met, The Art and Science of One-on-One Meetings. And we're going to get to that for sure here in a second. But before we do that, I just want to also mention you also published The Surprising Science of Meetings back in January 2019, which certainly got a lot of press. You did all kinds of talks at places like Google and elsewhere. Uh, You know, I've made it. Many, many uh, MBA students read your book, and they continue to do that, and they continue to benefit from it. Uh, what was that whole experience like with your first book on meetings? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, you know, I wrote this book. Um, it unabashedly had the word science in it, which is not always a good idea, and it had the word meetings in it, and that's not necessarily a good idea because the <laughs> space, the meeting space, was filled with tons of death by meetings books. And, but I, I view meetings more positively. Um, you know, I see meetings are as critical to organizational democracy and meetings as an evolution over the command and control systems of the industrial revolution. And so I wrote this first book in hopes to, you know, help to bring that science out to folks to make positive change, but I wasn't really optimistic. Um, and then it dropped and it was pretty quiet. No one cared. And then like four <laughs> days later, the Washington Post named it the number one leadership book. And then, then I'm moving to the, doing the morning shows and it exploded. And it was really, really exciting. It was a little dizzying. Mm-hmm. And at first it started to um, push me in directions that I realized I didn't want to go. So they were, after I would do some national media, I'd often be asked, well, would you want to come back and just talk about X? But X wasn't my area of expertise. And I really made a conscious decision to uh, stay in my lane and Mm -hmm. that I will gladly talk about anything to do with teams, meetings, collaboration. Um, Obviously, it connects with leader derailment, engagement, all kinds of great topics. But, um, you know, you it's an easy world to get sucked into, you know, once you start kind of having, you know, you talking to a million people on mm-hmm. TV. And, but once I became at peace with staying in my lane, I loved every minute of it because it just became an opportunity for me to talk about science to make lives better. Sure. So well, like I'm- a good scientist, you stayed in your lane. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't easy. I mean, right, it's very, yeah. um, it's, yeah, it's easy for other people to define who you are. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that I didn't experience this type of, you know, public oriented success into my 50s because I realized big picture that none of this matters. Right. And at the end of the day, it's always, you know, family, friends, helping as many people as you can. And I don't think I would have had the maturity in my 20s 
Um, I wasn't as mature as Ben. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just glad that this happened later and I could just appreciate it for what it is, but not fall down a big pit. Yeah. You I know? just love that outlook. After we did that episode, I had several friends of mine who are heads of HR at different organizations said, we love this book. We love it for our executives. What has he got on one and one? Like, is there, because there, right. that book had not been out, but that yeah. was like the immediate response. Like, hey, is there any like Google yeah. Scholar published work? And I said, I just know he's working on one. Right. What, was that always the plan to do the big meeting first? How, how did the no. one-on-one, how'd you turn your focus there? Yeah, that is such a good question. And so after I did my first book, obviously, after you write a book, everyone says, what's your second book? And I had no clue. Um, I really just wanted to let it come to me. Um, You know, basically identifying a pain point and let that drive that conversation. And it just became clear to me that one-on-ones, A, are not talked about in the scholarship. Um, there was almost no articles around it. Going into the books market, there's like almost no content around it. And yet it is very clear that one-on-ones done well have unbelievable, unbelievably positive implications. Um, their connection to employee engagement, thriving, individual success, team success, um, inclusion success, and leader success. Um, this is the one meeting that should never be an email. This is not an optional meeting for a leader, right? So when we think about meetings, we always tell them, is the meeting really needed? That's not a conversation relevant to one-on-ones. This is core to being a leader, right? People crave being seen and heard, especially in more distributed workplaces. One-on-ones are your mechanism for seeing people, for including people, to having people feel like they're part of something bigger. And thus, to no surprise, it's related to retention of your top talent. You know, we've all, we've all heard the adage, and the science generally supports it, that people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. Well, one-on-ones are your opportunity to prove you're not a bad boss. And <laughs> so I looked at just one-on-ones, and the reason I wrote the book is I felt like I had some great science that I could leverage. I thought it was a really meaningful opportunity for organizations. And I also really liked the positivity around it, right? So typically when people hear the meetings topic, it triggers negative t- negativity. Well, when I ask employees, do you want one-on-ones with your manager? It's a chorus of yeses. This is mm-hmm. the meeting that people want. Right. And what was so cool, and I know we'll probably talk more about this later, is that when I ask people, what is their preferred cadence? You know, they generally want these weekly um, or every other week. And the interesting thing is, contrary to generational stereotypes, the older people wanted them more than the (laughs) junior people because they know how critical these things are. So the bottom line is this is just, it was just a perfect topic that was primed, I think, for positive impact. You know, you joked at the beginning about your childhood and that you were going to, uh, you know, start embarking on this study of meetings back, back way back when at the encouragement of your parents. But I do have to mention the dedication in this book is one of the the best ones that I've seen, right? So at the beginning of, of uh, Glad We Met, 
you'll, if you are going through those first pages and you come to the dedication, what you wrote in there is you said this book is dedicated to, to two amazing, kind, loving, inspirational, supportive, and generous women. My mom, Jane Rogelberg, with whom I had my very first one-on-one meeting, <laughs> and my wife, Sandy Rogelberg, with whom I've had the most one-on-ones with by far. I just love that so oh, much. That's you. awesome. Thank <laughs> you. I really appreciate that. You know, it's funny, writing the book, a second book, I really paid much more attention to those types of things. Um, Even my acknowledgments, um, I actually worked really hard on how, you know, since my last book, my dad's passed away. And, Hmm. you know, obviously as you get older, you, there's more and more of your loved ones that are no longer in your life. And um, I'm a big believer that the more you talk about them, the more alive they are. And I know you do, you believe that too, Ben. Absolutely. um, So the second book, it was much more work. I really, really worked hard on this one. And um, because you just don't know if you're going to do another one. And mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, it's not like I position my life. To, okay, now I'm working on book three. And so I just cherished this moment. But this book was so much harder also because the chapters build off of each other. And my first book, every chapter was kind of discreet. But having chapters that build off each other, oh my gosh, that mm-hmm. is so much more work. I mean, the amount of time I had to keep going back and going back, but I, I wanted to do it. I really wanted this book to be, um, I just wanted it to really help people. Yeah. Well, and I think it will. I, I really liked your first book. And but Chris and I both, when we were reading this one said, you know, there's actually a lot more in yeah. this book than there right. was in the, even in the first one. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I totally think this is a better book. And I, I mean, I like my first one, but I think this is better. Um, you know, I've just gotten more comfortable and confident talking about science. And that's a process. You know, it's not easy. Um, and when I first started writing about science, I, I was horrible at it. And But the beautiful thing is, is that I don't have to get feedback from smart people like you both. I can... <laughs> send it to my neighbors, right? Because this is supposed to reach a trade audience. Mm-hmm. So I could just, anyone who has, you know, a couple eyes, a couple ears, a finger, um, you know, they're a good candidate to say, yeah, this makes sense. This is really good. And I did that. I went, I went out to a variety of different individuals who were not PhDs to make sure that this book was positioned to help. All right. Well, let's start with some definitional work, which okay. the most obvious one to ask, and maybe obtusely so. Why would you ask this? But Stephen, what are one-on-one meetings? How do you hey, define them? It's a great question. And so there are our days are filled with one-on-one encounters. Right? We're always, you know, chatting with someone, bumping into someone, talking to someone about a project. That's not what I mean by one-on-one meetings. I'm defining a one-on-one meeting in a very specific way um, that connects with the science. So when I refer to a one-on-one meeting, this is a regular um, scheduled meeting between a manager and their direct report for the manager to truly understand what is on the mind of their people. It's a meeting facilitated and orchestrated by a manager, but it is not for them. It is for the direct report. And it can cover a variety of topics on the minds of the directs from daily activities to their well being to teams to organizations to long term. Um, Ultimately, it is a meeting to see people, it is a meeting to understand 
what is on their minds. And you could see just by that definition how powerful it is, right? We all, we all want to feel seen. We do. Right? That's a fundamental human characteristic. And yeah. when you're listening to someone, we want to know that person's truly listening. And once mm -hmm. you establish that, you know, and I, I, I mean, Ben, going back to you and I remember early on when you and I were taking a walk around campus and you were deliberating <laughs> on, on what to do and we met, right? And, but those moments where you can convey that you truly see someone and you're interested in them, it creates a bond mm -hmm. that doesn't go away. And, you know, again, I think about our relationship. I mean, you haven't been in Charlotte for quite a while, but we're so deeply connected. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what one-on-ones are all about, right? It's taking a genuine interest. It's helping convince people that they're not just cogs, that you're not just, right, that but that they're actually people. And that's what a one-on-one -on -one meeting is all about. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because when I was reading the chapter on walking meetings, yeah. I immediately thought of, <laughs> hey, that was that one wonderful time when we walked around campus a little bit. Yeah. And it was funny because most that was the first time I encountered going to a professor and saying, hey, I want to talk about something. And and that person saying, hey, well, let's go for a walk. Yeah. And so we went and it was a nice day. So we went on a little walk. And and like you mentioned, we talked about, you know, my future and yeah. different things like that. It was very memorable. And, and, and it was important from that connection piece. Right. And I think that is such a key part of uh, having flourishing organizations, yeah. having good leadership relationships. Right. Um, let's talk oh, a little bit. And let me bit. just say one more yeah. thing before you move on. Um, sure. Because I think we can circle back on this later. The other really neat thing about this topic, and don't forget, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Don't forget your thought. I want to go to your thought, but I just want to tee this up in case you want to talk about it later. The other fascinating thing about one-on-ones is that it's a meeting that's actually relevant to home, to mm. home. And that is really intriguing to me. Yeah. Because if you think about parents and their children, children want to be seen. But so often, parental communication with their children is have you done this? Did you do that? Stop doing this. Fix this. Don't hit that. Right? It's mm -hmm. not real conversations to truly connect with your kids. And so yeah. one of the connections I try to make in this work is how people can bring these concepts into their home. And now I'm not talking about rigid, rigorous calendar holds like we would do with their, our people, but there's opportunities to have predictable interactions mm -hmm. with our children and to help them feel connected to the parent in a non-transactional type of a way. So I just want to throw oh, that yeah. out there. So that's awesome. And we're, we are going to come back to that because I actually thought of that as I was reading your book too. And it's something that my wife and I have tried to do with our kids and one-on-one -on -one time with your kids yeah. is fantastic. And I think taking some of these ideas that I'm sure you'll share will, will help me and my wife take that to the next level as well. Um, before we go there though, I, it seems like you've, you, in the course of creating the book, uh, did some original research, did some key studies um, and drew upon some other sources of evidence. So I'm curious to, right. if you could share a little bit about that. And then the other piece is, you know, with something that's emerging, how do you deal with that from an evidence perspective? Yeah. It's something that, you know, millions of people are dealing with this thing. Yeah. We probably have something we can tell them that will help them, yeah. but we don't have this codified body of knowledge yet about yeah. everything related to it. Yeah. Oh, uh, 
you, you both asked such great questions. Um, so this was, this was a tricky one. Um, obviously, I've done a ton of research on meetings. So I had that. Then I conducted four studies for the book all around one-on-ones. But this was really different because unlike my first book, you know, I didn't send them out into the academic world. This mm-hmm. one, because I wanted to, I was moving much faster, the discussion of the findings was in this book. Um, so that's really different. And then there's the third source is that there really is a tremendous literature about relationships um, and conversations. And there was a great mass of related adjacent literature. Mm-hmm. So taking those three streams of research, all my work on meetings, you know, my new work, and then all literature around mentoring, communication, relationships, things came together. It became really clear um, about the variety of different techniques and approaches that will yield the greatest outcomes. And because there was convergence amongst these sources, then I was able to feel confident in my conclusions. But I do want to say this book is different because I frame it as the art and science of one-on-ones. Because one-on-ones, they are a different beast. And I position this book as here's a variety of choices you can make, um, but you need to make choices that fit who you are and choices that fit who the other person is. And so I stress this art perspective too, but I give a variety of choices to the reader. Um, So I don't prescribe a magic formula. I think that's Mm -hmm. important because the science is definitely not there. It can't prescribe a magic formula, but that's all right. And maybe there isn't a magic formula for this type of thing. We don't really know, right? I I think a magic formula would be problematic, right? Mm Because you could just imagine people then following a script and that's Mm -hmm. not how you have a relationship, right? So when you think about the podcast you do, yeah, you, you plan, but the best podcast hosts like yourself, they're nimble and flexible, right? And they allow the interview and the conversation to, to go in different directions. I often think that the best podcast hosts are actually exemplifying the learnings in the book. <laughs> they really are, right? Because they're about listening, engaging, hearing, um, making connections. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not meant to dominate, right? Right. And so, um, so overall, it's just the science, I think, was strong enough to yield meaningful conclusions. But I'm also super, super comfortable that making statements around how to listen effectively to others, even if there was no science <laughs> around that, but there is. But even if there right. wasn't, okay, right. that's not going to hurt anyone. Exactly. There's nothing in the book or you don't come close to doing any harm anywhere, right? Uh, You provide a whole bunch of really great frameworks and ways to think about this entire issue. So so So. if you want to be a good manager, you can't say, I outsource my one-on-one to chat GPT, right? (laughs) No, you can't. You can can leverage chat GPT. Um, So one of the the cool things that, um, you know, the conclusion of one-on-one should always involve some note-taking. And, um, but a great application of ChatGPT is to actually take the notes, put them in, and ChatGPT can identify themes as well as changes over time. And that could be very helpful. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how this one on one content fits with performance appraisals. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful connection 
by doing regular one-on-ones, you actually can make your performance appraisal system work. And that's a strange comment because performance appraisal systems typically don't work, but one-on-ones can make it work because everything is signaled in advance. And as a result, performance appraisals are no longer events. They're just part of a process and then they can work. And so the notes that you take in your one-on-ones provide the corpus of material for your performance appraisals. And AI could be very helpful for truly getting out all the learnings from your notes. Now, some managers may be thinking, wait, one-on-ones having, have something to do with performance appraisal? Does that mean that I need to treat all of these as feedback sessions? You just told me that we need to allow the participant or the direct report to maybe drive more of the agenda here. It's for them. How do I, how do I make yeah. sense of that? I, I love the idea yeah. of, of all of this. So let's help our listeners kind of sure. see how they might all fit together. I love that you asked that question. And so it's not, we're not going, we're not going into that one-on-one. Let's say I'm your, I'm your supervisor, Ben, which we know would never happen. <laughs> but let's say we go into a one-on-one. My job I'm not going in there to say, okay, Ben, hey, I observed you did this right, this wrong. Here's your your plan. But if you bring up, you say, hey, I've been struggling on X. I would love your insights. Mm-hmm. Now the door's open. Um, you know, if you say, um, if you just bring up a challenge, right, the door is open. So yes, there is certainly feedback giving that's part on one-on-ones, but it's on your terms you open the door. And isn't that the greatest way for us to truly engage with feedback, right? Mm -hmm. We tend to resist feedback when someone imposes it upon us. But if we slightly open the door and that feedback is delivered well, that stuff sinks in. Sure. So the connection, so performance, so these one-on-ones, because they're predictable, they're regular, that feedback just comes up naturally as in the course of it, um, but not necessarily every one. But you, next thing you know, it's just when it comes to performance appraisal system time, season, it's just the topics have most likely, not always, but most likely been broached. Um, right. Employees have seen what's on your mind naturally. Um, and so they go into the performance appraisal just not with the same anxiety. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that is because they have a relationship, right? And that's what one-on-ones do. They form a relationship. And when you have a relationship, you tend to trust someone's intentions, Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of problems with performance appraisal is that we don't trust their intentions. But once you do, you're so much more willing to go on the journey. Right. You know, one thing I always tell my MBA students and executives is that a performance appraisal meeting, the formal review of whatever the person did over the past whatever period, that should never be a surprise party. And I think the one-on-one is a a great way to open that door. And I think what you mentioned, you know, not treating it as every single one's going to be a feedback session, let them kind of drive the the agenda. That makes a, a lot of sense. And I think can be really helpful with that relationship piece. Because the other thing I tell folks a lot of times is, that you know you can deliver negative feedback if necessary but it's best if before that even comes up if that person knows in the marrow of their bones that you have their best interest in mind changes right? everything absolutely changes everything that yeah the your perceptions of the giver of information and again this is where it also connects back to home 
right? So if you have invested in the relationship with your kids in a non-transactional way, then when you do have radical feedback or challenging feedback, they're just going to approach it in a much more healthy way. And and that's great. I mean, it, but we have to make the investment. But I, I'll, I'll say this, and this is something that really surprises audience when I do these keynotes around one-on-ones, is one-on-ones actually make time for the manager. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm scheduling meetings. How could that make time? Well, what we've observed is, let's say that, okay, I'm going back to the hypothetical, I'm your manager. Chris, I'm your manager. And um, so basically, if you know that you have me every week, you actually save topics that you would typically interrupt me with to that meeting because it's predictable. And um, now, obviously, if there's something emergency, you'll tell me no matter what. But in general, what was found was that people tend to save their topics. So there was, the, the manager wasn't getting it as interrupted. That's a time savings. Furthermore, these one-on-ones create alignment, clarity, less rework, more coordination with other people, more retention. All those things ultimately save a manager time. So when I have a manager say to me, I just don't have time for these. And I'm like, that is your problem. Because that means you're prioritizing other activities and you're missing out on the opportunity that can actually give you time and more success. And managers need to be reminded that the more their people thrive, it's, that is their performance. So when you make that investment in others on your team, you're actually making the investment in yourself. It helps you. And, you know, it even reminds me, my Sandy and I, my wife talk about this all the time. Like, so we, we live um, half time in the middle of uptown Charlotte. So right in the mix. And one of the things that we encounter a lot more is people in horrible situations, homeless situations, what mm-hmm. have you. And, um, you know, so we have opportunities to give people money for free meals, um, go into grocery stores and help buy them things. And you'd like to think, oh yeah, we're doing that for them. We're doing it for us too. Mm-hmm. There's something profoundly amazing about helping others, there giving is. to others. It is the key determinant of life satisfaction. So one-on-ones actually drive your ultimate goal, which is to have a meaningful life. Now you had awesome. early in chapter one um, a quote, and I'm going to read this quote that I I took okay. w- I took with me through the whole book okay. that right. shaped that shaped the lens of how I looked at everything. And so I'm just going to. Re- so in chapter one, you write interestingly, research has not found a plateau effect for one on ones. Yeah, where too many one on ones resulted in employee engagement leveling off or decreasing. In fact. It turns out to be just the opposite. My research generally suggests that overall there is a positive linear relationship such that as the number of one-on-ones increase, so does employee engagement and positive perceptions of a direct manager. Now, I was like, whoa. And then anytime you brought something new about meetings or about how how you might do them better 
or the types of outcomes, it shaped my lens of like, well, like, hey, do you want good stuff? Well, yeah. Well, how much good stuff do you want? Like, all how much good stuff you got? I'll take all of it, right? <laughs> yeah. And and so when when you're going through that stuff, with that in mind, how you know you talk about frequency, flow, clustering, a bunch of stuff. How do you? How should a manager think about frequency yeah. in regards to this stuff? So I'm really glad you brought that up. That was a huge surprise to me, by the way, in the research. I really thought there'd be a plateau effect that would emerge. And um, it just didn't. And um, the more we thought about it, though, that really is not a huge surprise. Because if I said to you, um, what, how often do you want to feel seen by people you care about? How often do you want people to actually take an interest in you and your success and well-being? You're going to say, give me as much of that as you can. Mm -hmm. Give me, give me, give me. I love that. You caring about me? Yeah, I, I like to be cared about. <laughs> so, but if the one-on-ones are executed poorly, right? When the manager redirects it and makes a meeting about them um, and their needs, then absolutely there's a plateau. In fact, you don't get any of the benefits. So <laughs> the best predictor when we ask people, would you want more or less one-on-ones with your manager? The response was all dependent on whether the manager actually carries these out aligned with the science in the book. Mm -hmm. So when the manager is truly doing the types of things that the book says, the employees are like, I want more. I don't care how many other meetings I have. I don't care how busy I am. None of those predicted it, except when the meetings were done poorly. So when they... If the manager is noticing their people don't want one-on-ones, that's actually feedback to them. It means they're not doing a good job. And so I think that's really kind of important. Um, and so what is the, the practical cadence? Well, we know that people most desire a weekly one-on-one. -on -one. We know that's not always feasible. The data seem to support very strongly that the weekly is the, the best outcomes associated with it, the every other week was the second best outcomes. And then it drops down with monthly. Monthly still had some benefits over nothing, but you still don't get the same benefits, right? Because you don't get any of the continuity, any of the momentum. So we know that the weekly and by other every other week had the best outcomes. And when asked, employees said that they most desired those types of cadences. So I think we have some pretty good clarity. Um, interestingly, Chris, it was less about time in the one-on-ones. Um, so if you, given your schedule, what have you, you can only spend 15 minutes each week with your, with your people, but those are a great 15 minutes. It still seems to yield result in the positive benefits. And I think that's a really important takeaway, right? Because when you have a high quality engagement with someone, that sticks with them. And even if it's lesser amounts of time, it's still really high quality and you get a lot of benefits. You know, I remember early in my career when I'm first walking into one-on-ones, you know, straight out of college, it'd be like, Everett, need to see you in my office. You're like, <laughs> can you just, you yeah. know, 
cap that with a it's bad or ever in my office right. it's totally fine don't yeah. worry about it or see me this afternoon right. and then walk away yep i know <laughs> and, and that's actually the i mean that's one of the nice things about one-on-ones is that you know they they're no longer events they are just processes mm-hmm. and they just become who you are as a leader and thus when your manager says you know let's have our one-on-one you're not filled with anxiety mm-hmm. and because you trust that person and you trust that person's intentions. Once you trust someone's intentions, the world changes. Everything it changes, does. right? It's trusting the intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me, once I trust someone's intentions, I'm so forgiving. You know, they could be, they could present those intentions horribly, but if I know they have good intentions, I'm I'm going on the ride with them. And I think that's an important the, the delivery of how you do things winds up mattering less if your intentions, your heart is in the right place. And again, these one-on-ones are just this opportunity for people to really know you. Um and you know, managers can create safety in these one-on-ones um through excellent listening and even them being appropriately vulnerable. Right. So if a manager wants employees to be to, to disclose their challenges, then managers will need to be, do that as well appropriately. But think about it. This is how you build relationships. It absolutely is. And uh, you know, I have a question kind of related to that. But before we get there, just a practical point that I found myself thinking about. And you do talk about this in the book. But uh, what if you just have a very flat organization and you have like 17 yeah. direct reports? I know. And you know, I'm hearing, oh, I, I, it, there's no limit to how yep. great these things can be. Yep. Uh, what, what are some suggestions there? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so there's, there's a few things. So obviously you can move to an every other week cadence. Um, you can decrease the amount of time. So if you move to every other week and, and do 20, 25 excellent minutes, you're going to get some good benefits. Um, other managers have actually um, created an approach where they're more senior members of the team. They actually meet with the more junior members of the team um, on the off weeks so that those junior folks actually are still in contact with someone of meaning to them who could help them and, and care, um, which can create a really nice collective culture. So bottom line, as you have more directs, obviously you have less time for these activities, but it's still something you have to prioritize. In fact, you could make the case that when you have 17, there's even a greater priority associated with these because you have more to coordinate and align. Um, So play with your time. Be creative by trying to bring in other team member resources into the picture and try to figure out how how the heck not to have 17 directs because (laughs) that's not good for you nor your directs. So let's think about how we can solve that problem too. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. I want to piggyback on that because you and not necessarily go totally down the skip level meeting, which is totally covered in the yeah. book. You go buy the book yesterday, listeners. Um, <laughs> it's that good. But um, the idea, okay, you're entrepreneur founder, you have that shop. Now you find yourself with 20, 30 reports that all come to you. You're no longer effective as an executive. Mm-hmm. How do you want to think about breaking that apart where people you used to meet with? 
who yeah. care and value. You've done it all right. They care and value and love you and trust you. Yeah. And now they got to report to a new jack wagon. Like, what, <laughs> what, how do you do that break? Yeah. I mean, it's that could be really challenging. Um, but if that new jack wagon, which I've never heard that expression in a million years. <laughs> ben, have you heard the expression of a jack wagon? Many times, but only from Chris. Okay, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully you've created a culture where the person, you know, you, that lots of your talent is ready to do one-on-ones effectively. And when you break into smaller groups, you're not going to have a big drop-off. But this brings us to, I think, an, an unbelievable area of opportunity. So first of all, our data suggests that only around 50% of one-on-ones were rated as being optimal. So 50% mm. were rated suboptimally. We also know that managers leave these one-on-ones thinking it went better than their directs. So there's a little bit of a blind spot. That's not a big surprise. We tend to have blind spots around lots of things. What was maybe more interesting is that in, as part of the interview project I did with a tremendous amount of organizations in the Fortune 100, I found only one that provides any training to their managers around one-on-ones. Mm. Now, take that in. That's amazing, right? So you have an organizational blind spot. Furthermore, in my, over the course of my interviews and, my, and I've done these keynotes for these HR leaders, and I always ask this question to the, the broader community. You know, I ask them, so do you, when you onboard managers, do you talk about one-on-ones? No. Do you have any systems or forms or processes that you share with your managers to make sure that these one-on-ones are great? No. Only one exception, Cisco. And so organizations and HR and talent leaders, they have their blind spot. And this is so problematic, but it's also this beautiful opportunity that you could start creating these systems, right? Building into your engagement surveys, content around one-on-ones to at least start to create that feedback and accountability. Making sure that when someone takes on a new role that they understand how, what their options are around one-on-ones. Um, so there's so many things that could be done that make it so that you don't have a weak link, like what mm -hmm. you're describing, that you have made this into a core organizational practice designed to promote thriving and retention of your top talent. And so, yeah, so hopefully the parts start to become interchangeable um, and you just assume that this is going to be done well. And if it's not, that person gets feedback and they learn how to do it well. So as we start to bring this in for a little bit of a landing, because I know we uh, ha only have you for a few more minutes, okay. um, I wanted to come back to this idea of relationships. And you, you brought it up a couple of times about how one-on-ones are very important for building those connections. And you know, the one piece that comes to my mind is this idea of just basic leadership activity. If we boil down what leadership actually is, mm -hmm. a big part of it is high quality relationships between people. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit more. And then I also just want to, before we close, um, touch a little bit on what you talked about bringing this back to home, because sure. I think that's fascinating. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So when you really think about the essence of leadership, you're providing a direction, you're sharing a, a path forward, and then you're trying to engage and energize people to go follow that path to overcome obstacles and challenges and work together to do so. Um, all those activities are made much easier if there's a relationship in hand that people trust your judgment, trust your vision, know you have their backs, know you will support them when they have that inevitable fall that you'll help lift them up. So relationships in many regards are the foundation of motivation. They're also the foundation of agility. And so when we think about our forward progress, it's always lumpy, right? Mm -hmm. Very rarely do we ever just have this perfect, positive, linear path to success. We fail and we have to get up. When you have good relationships, when that foundation has been created, when someone extends a hand to help lift you up, mm -hmm. you're more likely to do that for someone else, right? So you're building a healthy culture. And even when your manager says, hey, I now think we need to go to point Z, even if you disagree, there's a good foundation. You say, okay, let's, mm -hmm. let's try. I'll, I'll support that because you care. And I know you have, your, you have good intentions. So ultimately, relationships are everything. They really are. They're the cornerstone of leader effectiveness, team success, organizational effectiveness, and personal happiness. Yeah. And real quick, what about bringing this back home? Sure. Yeah. So it could look like a lot of different things when we talk about it being home. I relish and encourage parents to make sure that they have prioritized their children in predictable ways that they notice. They need to notice it. And so whether it is this predictable time on Sundays where each parent, you know, grabs a kid and grabs a bagel, you know, whether it's a predictable time that when you know you have a long drive to basketball practice, that you actually use that time really effectively. So you seek out, you become intentional, right? You intentionally try to identify windows of time where you ask kids questions and you don't dominate and you don't tell them what they need to do. And you don't say, have you cleaned up your room yet? It's, <laughs> so how are things really going for you at school? What, what are the things that are most fun? Mm -hmm. What are your biggest challenges? What are you most liking? What are you most hating? Hey, you, the other day you told me that you were having challenges with Sarah. You know, so how did that pan out for you? Right? So I'm demonstrating that I'm listening. And it's just, this, it's just an intentional moment where that child knows that you are fully there for them. You're not checking your phone, right? You're not asking to do something. You're just engaging with them on their terms. And when I shared this, actually, I should clarify, this wasn't my brilliant insight. This was the insight of when I had some counselors, therapists read this book. And they said, you know, you basically just wrote content that directly ties into best practices in parent-child relationships. Wow. And I thought that was awesome. And it does. Um, we live in a world with millions of distractions. 
Mm-hmm. We live in a world that we can stare at our phone and forget all that's around us. We live in a world where people can feel isolated. And yet the foundations, the fundamentals of humans haven't changed. You got it. So one-on-ones, be it with your kids, with your directs, are just that opportunity to bring humanity intentionally to others. And by doing so, so many great things happen for them and you. This is fantastic. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for making time. Now, I know that people can find out more about you at stephenrogelberg.com. And both your books, Glad We Met and The Surprising Science of Meetings, they're on Amazon. There are a lot of other places, too. Yep. Is there any anywhere else that you'd like to share that you have a web, web presence since last we chat? So it's that's the perfect site, stephenrogelberg.com. Um, I, I will say I'll add one thing is I'm so passionate around getting this science out there. I am donating all of my author royalties to the American Cancer Society. There's no personal profit in this for me. I just want to get it out there. And so I encourage people to buy the book if they want to do this activity or buy this book, if they want to help eradicate cancer. How's that? <laughs> Fantastic. That's awesome. That, that's awesome, Stephen. Uh, what else would you like to share with our listeners? I'll let you have the last word. All right. You both are doing a great job. <laughs> that's what I want to share with the listeners. You're, you're bringing important topics out there. You engage really well with your, um, your guests. You give them a great stage to talk about the science. You do your preparation and legwork to make sure the conversations are excellent. So my final word is just recognition for your excellent work and appreciation for helping to bring science and key learnings into the marketplace of ideas. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. That's awfully kind. Our guest today has been Stephen Rogelberg. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on the Indigo Podcast. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.